0: good to see you guys. If um, you're joining us for the first time today, we are in the midst of a teaching series. Today is week number three, and this series is covering the Nicene Creed, um, one of the ancient creeds that was written many, many years ago um, that basically kind of outlines the basic foundational belief systems that guide Christianity. Um, it's kind of the, the deep theological sorts of things, but it's, but it's very rich um, for our Christian living today as well. Just to remind us kind of what all was going on back in those days, after the coming of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost, um, one of the things that the early church was known for was their devotion to the apostles' teaching. And so, back in the day before, you know, they, before the people had a Bible that they could go to, to examine, they were reliant upon the apostles to teach them. I mean, these men had been with Jesus, they had walked with Him for Three years around the country of Israel, back and forth from place to place, listening to his teachings, observing his way of life, watching the way he interacted with people. And so when the church would come together, they would listen to the apostles tell the stories of Jesus again and again and again. They would listen to the apostles' teaching and their commentary on the words that Jesus had spoken. But in time, whenever the apostles began to die, um, the church Needed, and the the gospel began to spread broader. They needed to find some ways to communicate those basic truths to the to the masses, and so they developed these uh, these creeds over time. And probably the more famous of all the creeds was the Apostles' Creed. And um, you know, I say it's famous because we've had some like Rich Mullins and Third Day. They have made songs about the Apostles' Creed, and so you may know it simply by hearing it on the radio. You may know it, not even know you know it, because it's on the radio. Um, but these, these sorts of creeds were, were meant to help pass down the teachings from generation to generation. Um, eventually the church decided that it needed to expand on the Apostles' Creed, and this was primarily due to all of the uh, erroneous teachings and stuff that were starting to bleed their way into the church. Um, some really funky stuff was being taught back in those days, and they needed to weed out um, those things, and, the, and those, to have the church stand on what's true. And so, around the year 325 AD, the Emperor Constantine called together this council, and they met in the city of Nicaea, which is in modern-day Turkey. and their, their Their purpose was to not only outline the, the the foundational belief system of Christianity, but also to combat these false doctrines and these heresies that were creeping in. And so, the the biggest and you know, because of the theological implications of all that it was one of the reasons that the Nicene Creed is kind of long, and it's kind of complicated to read, um, and, and to kind of to try to communicate together. But it's so important for us to know the truth of who God is, who His Son is, who the Holy Spirit is, and all these sorts of things for our day-to-day life. And so, um, you know, the, the Creed is so important for our Christian living. Um, You know, one of the cool things about the Nicene Creed is that since the year 17, let's see, 325 or so, for 1,700 years now, the creed has been the definitive statement of what is true Christian faith. Not only that, but it's like a a unifying force. Um, There's something really beautiful, really extraordinary about knowing that whenever we say the creed together, that we are saying it with people of all these different countries all around the world, different languages, different denominations, all the denominational lines hold to the Nicene Creed. Swedish Lutherans and Korean Presbyterians and African Pentecostals and uh, Guatemalan Catholics and on and on down to Chinese house churches and and, uh, Orthodox believers in Russia, all the way here to America in the Evangelical Church. We all, whenever we say the Creed, we all affirm, this is what we we believe. We believe this. Let our life be built on it. And so this morning, if you would, i want to ask you to, to say the creed with us together this morning. So we'll work, walk our way through it. We believe in one God. Say it with us together all at once, if you would. We believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, the Maker of heaven and earth, of all that is seen and unseen. We believe in one Lord and became truly human. For our sake, he suffered under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried. On the third day, he rose in accord- accordance with the scriptures, and he ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son. From the Father and the Son, He is worshiped and glorified, who has spoken through the prophets. We believe in one holy, worldwide, and apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We look for the resurrection of the dead and the life for the world to come. Amen. Amen. Such good stuff. Excuse me. You know, three weeks ago, Pastor Russ spoke on that first stanza, which talked all about God the Father. And he kind of outlined the importance of what the creed was there for, and then he just walked through what the church teaches about God. Last week, we talked about Jesus as as the eternal Son of God, and how He has existed for all time, even before time, all eternity, just as His Father has, and it was, and that somehow, some way, He was involved in the creative process. The Creed tells us that through Him all things were made. And today, we're going to be focusing on this third stanza of the Creed, which fi- primarily focuses on Jesus' humanity, on His coming. Just to remind us, the creed says, For us and for our salvation, He came down from heaven, was incarnate of the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary, and became truly human. And for our sake, He was crucified under Pontius Pilate, He suffered death, and was buried. You know, in the words of the Apostle John, as he starts his, his gospel, he writes this to describe the humanity of Jesus. The Word became flesh, And made his dwelling among us. Love that simple little sentence. How powerful it is. Just imagine it this way. Jesus is the. the, He is God. Jesus is God. The only begotten eternal son of the father. And he exists. Before all worlds. He is the one. And somehow some way. He is involved. in, In bringing all things into being. He's not only present at the moment of creation, he brings it into being. He speaks it forth. He makes galaxies and black holes and quarks. He makes planets and oceans and whales and trees and monkeys and raspberries and all kinds of other cool things. And then one day, the one who stood outside of time steps into time and decides to become a human. And he did so in the very same way that you and I become human. He was born into this world as a helpless little infant. The God who made air is now dependent upon air for survival. The God who made humans is now dependent upon two humans to feed and care for him, to nurture him, to change his dirty diapers and these sorts of things. So why would God do it this way? Why would he go through such a dramatic downward kind of shifting of himself, a move. Well, the creed tells us that it was for us and for our salvation. Don't miss how incredibly personal this is. That's on your notes there, the first line. Don't miss how incredibly personal this is. The creed is not just identifying who God is or who Jesus is. It's identifying who it's for, and it's for you, and it's for me. For us and for our salvation. The Apostle Paul writes in Romans 5 You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. He goes on to say that God demonstrates his own love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. When Jesus stepped out of heaven, And he put on human flesh, he did so for us and our salvation. Meaning that he came to rescue us, to set us free. When the the New Testament talks about salvation, it does so kind of in two different dimensions. It talks about what we are saved from and what we are saved to. What we're saved from and what we're saved to. So for us and our salvation, Jesus came to rescue us. And when we put our confidence and faith in his finished work on the cross, we are saved from our sin. We're rescued out of our slavery to sin. Just think about the Israelites as they were being rescued out of Egyptian bondage. And for years they had been, they'd spent time as slaves. And here comes Moses and God uses this man to lead the Israelites out of some slavery. Liberated them from slavery. Set them free from a horrible existence under the oppression of a really maniacal ruler. By simply placing their faith in the shed blood of a lamb, by painting the blood's lamb, or the lamb's blood, over the doorpost of their house, they were delivered from, from, from Egypt. And in a similar way, whenever we put our confidence in the shed blood of the Lamb of God, we experience deliverance from sin. The apostle Paul writes in Colossians 1, for he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and he has transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son and who has purchased our freedom and has forgiven our sins. Purchased our freedom. Not only that, but when we put our confidence in Jesus' finished work on the cross, we are rescued into a glorious new existence. We're born again. We're given a whole new identity. And by faith, we are made sons and daughters of God. How incredible is that? As God's children, we are promised an an eternal inheritance, a glorious inheritance. And not only that, but we are given the power to live a transformed life right here and right now today. Back there on the back wall, of this building there is a scripture from 2 Corinthians chapter 3 that talks about how the Lord is the spirit and where the spirit of the Lord is there is freedom and the freedom he's talking about is the freedom to be transformed into the image of God from one degree of glory to another it's not only that we it's not it's just not enough to know that we've been saved from sin we also have to know that we have been saved to a glorious new life right now today you know, freedom from sin can lead us to simply kind of dwell in this thing of, yeah, I'm I'm forgiven for those things I've done wrong, but I'll just keep doing this, doing this thing called life. If we don't understand that we've been given freedom to live in a new way, we're never gonna break out of those old sin patterns that, that dog our steps. So we need to understand and we need to believe that we are being made new right here today. Salvation is not just good news that we've been set free from the junk of our life. We have been set free to walk in the power of God. The power of God to change our lives today. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, this means that anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old life is gone and the new life is come. Now sometimes when we're learning how to live this new life, we have little bumps and stuff along the way, especially maybe early on. We go through a little struggle, and that's not uncommon. C.S. Lewis has a really interesting analogy in his uh, book, Mere Christianity. He talks about the importance of why Jesus came as a man. And he goes on and he makes this analogy of how this affects our lives by kind of contrasting a pegasus and a trained horse. He says, when a pegasus is first learning to fly, things may be a little Kind of funky at first. They may, may bump into things and crash all the time and get bunged you know, bung up their knees and stuff like that. And a well trained horse may actually perform better. A well trained horse may prance around beautifully and jump over things as he's told to and stuff like that. Um, but as time goes on and these two horses continue, the training is only going to go so far. But the Pegasus is actually going to learn to fly. He's going to soar. And his point is that human beings without the gospel can be very well trained. They can live a good life. They can have a uh, walk with, with upright morals. They can be honorable people, respectful people, people who have good education and do all sorts of things like that. And sometimes, you know, a person who's a Christian may not really, they may look a little rough around the edges to some people. They may, you know, do things that question people to, 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 you know, are they truly saved sort of thing, you know, for a while. But it's only a matter of time. Because eventually that training that the, that the trained person has, it's going to hit its limit. It's going to hit a wall. Whereas the person who's experiencing God's power, you're going to live a completely different kind of life. One day the wings of the Christian are going to develop fully, and the person is going to soar. You know, Salvation is not about reforming our behavior. It's about the power of God to live a, re- a dynamic life today, right here, right now. The power to be God's children, the power to walk as a new creation in this world. Excuse me. The next little phrase says, He came down from heaven. For us and for our salvation, He came down from heaven. You know, for the Hebrew, earth is man's realm. And heaven is a way of talking about God's realm. But Jesus took this to a whole new level. God doesn't just care about the affairs of men. We see in the life of Jesus. In the life of Jesus, He actually came down. He came down from heaven and He joined us. I mean, how cool is that? He did so in order to change the affairs of men. Did any of you happen to see the film that came out back in January called The Finest Hours? Did you happen to see that show? It was a movie depicting the true story of a really daring Coast Guard rescue. Back in 1952, one of the worst storms to ever hit the East Coast was kind of slammed into New England. Um, and It damaged this, this oil tanker off the coast of Cape Cod. Cape Cod. And it really, literally kind of ripped this ship in half. And a small, On a small lifeboat, um, with, facing rigid, frigid temperatures and like 70-foot high waves and stuff, these four members of the Coast Guard went out to go rescue these 30 sailors that were trapped on this ship. And it's an amazing story. It's a true story that depicts just the, the utter bravery of the Coast Guard. Well, if you and I were trapped at sea, we wouldn't want the Coast Guard... Simply radio in instructions to us. If we were trapped and we were drowning, we wouldn't want the Coast Guard to just come to us and shout instructions on how to swim from the boat. No. If we were drowning, we want the Coast Guard to come rescue us. We want them to come and to dive into the water and to pull us out of the water by their own strength. And in a similar way, if Christ is going to come for us and our salvation, We needed him to experience everything that we experience as humans. That's exactly what the gospel declares that Jesus did. He came down from heaven into the storm of our humanity. He grabbed a hold of us in order to rescue us out of the murky waters of our sin, and he rescued us. He saved us, came down from heaven. Next phrase says he was incarnate of the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary, and he became truly human. Now, regarding this whole business here about the incarnation of the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary, many people have a hard time with this. You know, a lot of people start to lose their way. I don't know if I can really believe that sort of thing. Can we, can we truly trust that part? If history is our only lens for, uh, for finding truth, then we're going to look at this statement and we're going to say, that's never happened before. I don't know anybody who was born without a human dad. If science is our only kind of path for finding truth, well, then we can say, well, since that's never happened before and it's not repeatable, I can't, you know, this can't be true. It's not repeatable. Science doesn't work that way. We have to be able to see it again and again. The third alternative to finding truth it goes beyond history, and it goes beyond science. It doesn't mean we have to turn our brain off, but it's called faith. Another lens for knowing truth is called faith. And the ancient Christians are asking us to put, our, to put on the lens of faith and to trust that when, Jesus, when the Scripture declares that Jesus was born of the Virgin, that is true, that there's a meaning behind it and you know, some liberal theologians kind of dismiss this as just as just kind of mythic this is just a made up part to make Jesus seem bigger than life stuff like that um so we, just, we struggle to hold this together sometimes this two idea that Jesus could be fully man but not have a not have an earthly father even if we even if we acknowledge the virgin birth sometimes we just can't get our head around how can he be a man but have no human dad is he kind of halfway human not human You know, we we don't really understand it completely. But this creed declares and the scripture, even more importantly, declares that Jesus became incarnate. He became human, flesh and blood, just like you and me. And he did so by the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary. If we have a hard time believing this, we can kind of learn from the story that we see in the gospel where a man brings his son to Jesus asked if Jesus can heal him. And Jesus says, all things are possible to those who believe. The dad says, I do believe, but help me in my unbelief. You know, sometimes we, we struggle to believe and so we can cry out for help. Jesus is faithful. He will help us. So he became truly human and he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. So here we come to the cross. And the crucifixion in the first century was a form of not only punishment, it was a form of humiliation, a form of torture. They wanted to shame the people that they were crucifying. The most despicable criminals were dealt with by crucifixion. This is one of the, one of the instances we see this is a, a slave revolt led by Spartacus rose up, and they put that thing down by crucifying tons and tons of people. So why would they do that? Well, they wanted to shame these people that would, defi- that, would, that would defy the authority of Rome. And so, you know, it's just amazing to think that Jesus endured the same sort of death that um, these hardened criminals and this sorts of, stuff they called him the scum of the earth. Crucifixion was for the worst of the worst, the scum of the earth. And Jesus endured this same sort of death. He was called the scum of the earth. Just a few lines ago, we were talking about how Jesus is God from God. He's light from light. He's all eternal. He's all powerful. All things are made through Him. But here, the exalted Christ went all the way down to the lowest level, and He died the death of the scum of the earth. Philippians 2 tells us this. We see this In the Philippians 2, we see this beautiful kind of lyrical description of what Jesus did in His humanity. I want to read a portion of that this morning. He says, though he was God, he did not not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. And when he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on the cross. In verse 7 we are told that he gave up his divine privileges. This is a translation of the Greek word kenosis. And kenosis means to nullify, to make ineffectual. Jesus was God. He was equal with God. But he chose to empty himself of his power and authority as God, taking on the form of a humble, humble servant. He was unlimited in power as the second member of the Trinity, but he became limited, he became finite, and he became able to die on the cross for you and me. He didn't just come down from heaven, he actually surrendered to the limitations of humanity, everything throughout his life. He never once see Jesus using his power for his own benefit. Never once. And he even went down to the point of death. Now, if we contrast Jesus with Pontius Pilate, one of the only other names that's mentioned in this creed, we, we see a, a vast difference. You know, Pontius Pilate was at the top. He was a top dog. He had wealth. He had power. He had influence. People came to him and submitted to his word, whereas Jesus was born into a scandalous situation. He was considered a bastard child in the day. He spent his early years on the run from a governmental hit squad And then, when his family did settle down, he had to struggle through a meager existence as a poor carpenter. And during his days of ministry, he had no home where he could go and lay his head to rest. His family thought he was deranged, and his brothers mocked him. He identified with the poor and the disabled, with the outcasts. He knew what it was like to be lonely. He suffered physical hunger, and he grew tired. And when they lashed his back with a whip and pierced his hands and his feet with the nails, he experienced utter agony. And when he breathed his last, he died an actual death. The birth, the life, and the death of Jesus was real. I want to do a little heresy recap for us real quickly, if we could. On the first week, that first stanza we looked at, Talking about God the Father. Part of, that, part of that was to combat something called Marcionism. It was a teaching that was running rampant back in the day, led by a man named Marcion. And what he was doing was he was teaching that there were two gods there was an Old Testament God and there was a New Testament God. The Old Testament God was a lesser God, and so Marcion rejected the Old Testament God and the Hebrew Bible and those sorts of things. He didn't believe in the God of Israel. And so there were a lot of people that were tending to follow him that way. And so they were, the the creed is trying to say, no, there's one God. There's one God. He's always the same. Last week we looked at Jesus as the Son of God, the eternal Son of God. And this was to kind of combat a heresy that was rising up, doing a lot of damage called Arianism. Arianism taught that Jesus was not truly divine. He wasn't fully divine. He was just sort of like a super anointed man not the eternal son of god well of course this is contrary to what we see throughout the gospels and in the apostolic letters here in week three we're the the kind of heresy we're dealing with in this phrase about jesus's humanity is what we call docetism and docetism tells us that jesus only appeared to be human he only appeared to be human he was Primarily God and and not fully human, docetism says. You know, sometimes I've heard of wealthy people who go to try to spend a weekend among the poor so that they can experience what it's like to be poor. I've had some friends that have gone out to San Antonio to do this. I know there's an organization in Waco that does this as well. And while this sort of exercise is probably beneficial because it helps The wealthy, I kind of identify at least temporarily with the poor, experience what it's like. It maybe increases their level of compassion for those who are struggling. But the truth is is that wealthy people who do that sort of thing, they don't really know what it's like to experience the the struggle of being poor. And why is that? Well, because they're not really poor. (laughs) They don't know what it's like to really have to struggle on a day-in, day-out basis From moment to moment, where am I going to get my food? Where am I going to sleep tonight? If I get sick today, who's going to take care of me? What's going to happen to me? Wealthy people aren't aren't truly poor. And some think of Jesus and his incarnation in this sort of way. We think that he was just God hiding inside of a human suit. Sort of like Clark Kent was trying to keep his Superman status under wraps. At any moment, Clark Kent could run faster than, or fly faster than a speeding bullet. He could leap over a tall building in a single bound. He could rescue a train that was about to go off off a broken bridge. He could do anything that he wanted to do because Clark Kent was not fully human. He didn't know what it was like to be human and weak and vulnerable, to really struggle. Maybe that's why the author of the comic strip introduced Kryptonite. Because, you know, it's just not a compelling story unless the hero has some weaknesses. The thing about Jesus is that he's not Superman. Jesus became fully human. That's why this is the most compelling start of his, part of his story. And so why does this matter? Why does this matter? Why does it matter that Jesus became fully human? Why does it matter that he took on flesh and blood and and suffered all the same sort of weaknesses that we do. Well, as Gregory of Nizantius, he was an old church father. taught long ago, St. Gregory. He made a simple phrase that says, The unassumed is the unhealed. The unassumed is the unhealed. And by this he means that if Jesus had not fully assumed our humanity, if he had not fully become man, if he had not fully in- endured the weaknesses that we endure that he would not have been able to fully heal us either. It's essential that Jesus was fully man. Here's the point. When Jesus was at Lazarus' tomb, he was really crying that day. He was really weeping with sadness. He wasn't just faking it. At the garden, or whenever, excuse me, whenever Peter betrayed him, he wasn't pretending to be hurt. He was really hurt. One of the Gospels says that whenever Peter betrayed him the last time, that Jesus turned and looked at him. They made eye contact. That broke Jesus' heart. In The Garden of Gethsemane is Jesus was in agony, crying out to his father. He wasn't just acting out some divine script. He was really struggling with this decision. Take this cup away from me. I don't want to go through this, God. At the cross, when he said, I'm thirsty, he wasn't just trying to add drama to the moment. He was really thirsty. And in his final hours, when he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He wasn't just setting a pattern for us in our suffering. He was experiencing the agony of what it, was, what it meant to be separated from his father. And so why does all this matter? Well, because you and I suffer grief of losing someone some time. Just this past weekend, we went to the funeral of one of my uncles. We all know what it's like to lose someone special. All of us here at some point are going to be betrayed by a close friend. We're all going to feel the agony of having to go through a terrible decision should I do this or that? We're all going to thirst, we're going to hunger. We're going to cry out to God whenever we feel alone and whenever we take our dying breath, we are going to know that Jesus is there with us. He was there with us before he went through it during his time. And whenever we go through it again, he is there. He knows what it is to be man. The writer of Hebrews tells us For we do not have a high priest who's unable to empathize with our weaknesses. But we have one who was tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Not only that, Jesus not only came so that he could be with us, but he came so that he could rescue us. This is what we're going to close on this morning. First Peter chapter 2, we read this. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness, for by his wounds you have been healed. Jesus took our sin upon himself. He suffered in our place. He died in our stead so that we could be healed, so that our relationship with God could be healed. I'm going to pray for us now in this moment. So if you would, if you'd close your eyes. If you're here this morning and you have maybe never gotten to that place where you Have put your confidence in the work that Jesus did in his body while he walked walked the earth. It's as simple. It's nothing, no no kind of religious hoops you have to jump through, no no, uh, big uh, shenanigans you have to endure or anything like that. It's simply putting your confidence in Jesus, putting your faith in what he's done for you. The Bible tells us that. You declare with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, that you will be saved. It's simply just confessing with our mouth and believing in our heart and we experience the power of a transformed life, the power of deliverance today. So let me pray for us and, uh, and we'll ask God to continue to, to guide us as we go forward in worship. Our Father, we we just Declare your praises and thank you so much for the way you would send your son, for the way that you would send him from heaven to become incarnate of the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary to become fully human, the way that you would send him to be crucified under Pontius Pilate, to, be, to suffer death and to be buried for us and for our salvation. Thank you for your son and for all that he's done for us. We pray for those who are here this morning who may not know you, who have never, have never put their confidence in what Jesus did in his life and in his death. We pray that you would open the eyes of us all this morning. God, thank you for the life-giving gospel. Thank you for the work of your Holy Spirit. Thank you for the resurrection of Jesus. We, we rejoice to be your people. we thank you for this great truth that has stood the test of time for all these years and continue even now to guide the church. So lead us into deeper and deeper levels of understanding of what it means for Jesus to have come in the flesh. We pray in his name. Amen.